I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Hello everyone out there in listener land. You're listening to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is volume three, issue number 123. Almost rhymed. Nah. DM Vince and I am sitting here with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. And we have a first-time person on the show from the Dead Game Society. We're going to call him DM Chad because he's DM so many games he gets the title. Hi, guys. So let's start off. Chad, how how are you and how has Dead Game Society been? Uh, Good. We're doing uh, rather well, actually. Uh, We just did Origins uh, about a month or so ago. And had a really good time. We enjoyed it. And uh, you've, how, what have you? Are you guys planning to go to Gen Con? I assume all three of you. Or? This year we're not doing Gen Con. Uh, we really, most of us, due to family, you know, life and and work, we can really only afford uh, the time and, and really the money as well uh, to do one of the big mega cons. And we had never done Origins before, so we thought let's give that one a shot. And we're really glad we did it. We had a blast. They treated us really well there, and we had a lot of fun in the games that we ran. Cool. I never, I never, I've never been to Origins, and everyone says it's always like a nice atmosphere and a pleasant experience. So I'm thinking about going there instead of Gen Con one year. Yeah, it is. It's it's less crowded, uh, but there's still crowds. So if right. you like to be around a lot of people, there are pe- there are a lot of people there. It's but you don't feel. I don't know, claustrophobic when you're there. Yeah, you don't feel the need to have to rush to everything because everything's contained within the convention center, so you don't have to go three blocks to a hotel to get to your event. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that is much nicer, too, because speaking as one who has, uh, at Gen Con, walked all the way across Indianapolis to get to my, uh, my room only to remember that I forgot one of the core books that I needed or the adventure itself and had to walk all the way back uh, to the Canterbury, it was nice to be able to just just walk right over there without ever actually even going outside. Yeah, I mean, it's the it, Columbus Convention Center is a nice little self-contained world. They got a nice little food court. They have a, a fairly sizable convenience store that has anything you could need and various other shops and whatnot. So you really don't have to see sunlight for days if you get stay in one of the connected hotels oh yeah and you know i thought i don't know if it was just for origins and maybe they rented out this the room but it looked like uh in the convention hall uh in the downstairs level there was even a game store oh yeah that's a just a regular occurrence that they're there origins or not oh oh okay because it looked like it it looked permanent i mean it wasn't a stall it was its own store with a door and everything going into it i mean i thought that was rather convenient for gamers 
Right. It's, yeah, it's just the Heroes in Games is, that's their location in the convention center. (laughs) I always thought it was an odd location, but no, they've been there years, so. That's really neat. But yeah, we had a great time. I ran uh, the uh, D-Series and, you know, heavily abridged, uh, modified to a degree because, I, you know, obviously I couldn't have the uh, the prior modules that lead up to it. And so I had to change the, the plots, the goals a little bit so that they weren't, you know, ultimately ending up versus uh, Lolf. Uh, but rather, I made it more about uh, D1 was more about a lich, uh, uh, Azerbees, I believe is his name. He's actually in the module, but he's more of an encounter. I just made him the focus. Uh, in the second one, uh, what was the, the focus? I can't even remember what the what I made the uh, focus of the second one. But luckily, uh, four out of my six players signed up for every one of the events so i really just let them keep their characters and and they played through all three we had a blast well yeah when i uh dm'd a game for you guys in 2011 for gen con all the players kept the characters too they were like oh we just keep this as a souvenir i'm like okay i didn't think very cool yeah oh yeah uh yeah well they like that they get to know their character that way true I was just thinking, uh, since there are some people out here who are unfamiliar with Dead Game Society, why don't you just kind of give them a little chatter about it? Oh, sure. Uh, the Dead Game Society is a club uh, that my co-founders, uh, Michael and Colin, who've been on your show before, mm-hmm. uh, we just decided after uh, Gen Con several years back, uh, we weren't seeing all the games that we expected to see when we went there. Uh, primarily we were seeing a lot of the new stuff. Uh, and so on the way home, we decided that, you know, let's, let's form a club and let's run those games ourselves. So what we're all about really is, uh, running and promoting, uh, games and game editions, uh, that are no longer supported. So even though Dungeons and Dragons is technically still out there right now, uh, we tend to run the editions that are not really supported anymore, like first and second edition. <laughs> but other games as well. I remember, what was it, about a couple of years ago? Or actually, when did they, they drop fourth edition Michaels? Like, he said a public statement. He's like, so now we can start playing fourth edition since it's a considered a dead game? I was like, yeah, I guess so, Mike. Well, technically, yeah, you can. Uh, I have no real i'm not really into the whole you know edition wars i figure if you enjoy a game then you know by all means play it it's not my cup of tea that those particular editions really you know after second edition uh, my interest kind of dropped but i know that there is a large crowd out there that that follows it pathfinder is a perfect example of, of that of that love absolutely uh, yeah, and you uh, actually, when we first found you a couple of years ago, you inducted Jason and I into your uh, brotherhood, and uh, yes, indeed, tied us up and put us through the whole. Uh, oh, wait, I shouldn't say that out loud. Sorry. Uh, we told, we promised to never speak of that. I know. We got to get. We have to do it to. Oh, never mind. Matt's listening. <laughs> Thankfully, you guys won't be at Gen Con this year, so I don't have to look over my shoulder constantly. Oh, told you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, I, yeah, so I I thank you also for allowing me to try to gather up some people to do, to do some Texas uh, Dead Game Society so we can 
promote things at the conventions for you guys as well. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We're, I mean, we have always been about promoting people in different areas of the world to carry it on, you know, the tradition of pulling the old games off the shelves and, uh, and checking them out, giving them a second look. Uh, for a lot of people, it's a great trip down nostalgia. And for other people, younger players perhaps, it's a great intro into a game they've never played. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, they're new players and they're finding out about a game from 20 years ago. And like, wow, this game is really cool. I have to buy it now. Yeah, and with the older editions, uh, even when the game itself is still supported, they can they can see where the current game came from. They can make their own comparisons and they can they can really see how the game evolved. Uh, with other games, uh, you know, such as Boot Hill, per, for instance, or uh, Top Secret. Uh, you know, they're really discovering kind of a new game at that point. Yeah, I just happened to get my uh, hands on uh, Boot Hill 2nd Edition, courtesy of uh, Cinnabar from our forums. Uh, you know, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is really cool. I've never actually seen the actual Boot Hill game other than just glance readings, but this is actually kind of a cool system. So, Oh, yeah, check out the 3rd Edition, too. It's it's actually really good. I liked it. Uh, I was surprised it it got such a limited uh run it's really good i was also surprised about surprised about top secret not going any further than the si series unless i'm there's something you i'm not knowing no to my knowledge it stopped after si uh there are a few other spy games out there too the james bond 007 game is one uh chaosium has put out some really good material uh for their basic role play uh dealing with cold war uh type uh style play uh i think it's berlin back in uh, it's like berlin in the 50s it's really really cool i'm a big berlin, i'm a big cold war buff and when i run top secret i tend to center mine around the Cold War, and I, I don't really do so much the James Bondy, Ian Fleming, as I do the uh, John Le Carre, more kind of gritty, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, that sort of thing. I remember one game from Gen Con when I went with you guys, and you guys were doing um, a Rescue President Reagan mission. I can't remember exactly what the details were, but you had to save Reagan from a ship and everything like that. Do you remember that adventure? Uh, who was running that one? I don't think I was doing that I one. Think it was Michael that ran that one. It could have been that. That that sounds a little bit like one of Michael's games. His games, by the way, if you ever get a chance to be in one of them, uh, they're they're a hoot. Uh, you know, I they did uh, Gilligan's Island one at yeah. uh, Gary Con, and it was the people were just having a blast. They all had uh, the little, you know, flower lays on and uh, it, it looked really fun. Uh, that, and then he also did one uh, for Cthulhu based on uh, the love boat. Didn't you guys also do one with involving kiss one year for Gen Con? He does that kiss catastrophe for Marvel. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. TSR's Marvel superheroes. He does catastrophe <laughs> because even though you got to save the world, you still got to party all day and rock and roll all night. Absolutely. The way around. <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. He dresses up in the entire Gene Simmons battle armor for that. And when he walks through the convention to his game and he's in the entire set, uh, in, in all of his Gene Simmons destroyer gear, I mean, heads turn. 
he definitely is a creative person, especially when he was doing his. I don't know if he's still doing the My Seventies Room thing that he was doing. I think that I'm not really sure if that's still going or not. Uh, that would be a good question to uh, bring up to him. I know he loved it. Uh, but then there's Colin and me, and, and we're probably more traditional in the way we run games. Uh, Colin runs quite a few games as well. Uh, in fact, to my knowledge, Colin's the only one who still runs. Uh, uh, if, if you're a big fan of, of uh, Buck Rogers, he oh, yeah. does the old TSR Buck Rogers. But uh, he does it. Uh, he really does credit to that game. He makes the people who have played in it uh, rave about it. And he also does a Xena and Hercules game, which always gets really good reviews. The D6 uh, WEG edition of it. Yeah, he's a he's quite a fan of D6, actually. And uh, he's been turning me on to it also. It's a great little system that's been overlooked yeah, I agree. Uh, from the reading I've done, it's it's a really elegant system. I, I really like it. And he does a good job with it. Uh, we've always had fun when he runs that. I'm just sad that whenever you bring it up to a lot of people, they're like, D6. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of times it's not the game. It's the runner. Uh, you can have a game that has a bad reputation Put somebody behind the screen who knows what they're doing and can weave a good story, and they're going to think it's a great game. You could take a great game and put somebody who doesn't really know how to tell a story, and they're going to walk away and call that game not good. True. And, you know, it's it's you know it's a lot about the person that's running it, and it's a lot about the people at the table too. If you get people of open minds, you know, and are ready to roll with it they're going to have a great time. If you get people who sit down at the table and have already decided they don't like that system, it's not going to be an easy game. Yeah. I have to tug on his ear and talk about the Xena uh, Hercules game because I'd love to hear what he's done with it as far as adventures. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought that what was kind of funny at Origins, uh, my little highlight i guess uh i was sitting outside having my orange juice uh one morning and hercules walked by me kevin sorbo so i waved to him he waved to me and that was about as far as that one went <laughs> good did he have i didn't sh- say hey hercules did he have, still have his hair short because he's rejecting the long hair hercules look yeah you know i i think it was short come to think of it now i don't even remember yeah he was, was probably to too busy saying kevin sorbo yeah. <laughs> well, it's great that you recognized him. I'm sure he was. Happy. Uh-huh. So, uh, Matt, who's being quiet in the background, what have you been doing, Matt? Uh, well, not a lot of gaming. Just uh, my gaming group had some uh, logistical issues with people being out of town due to the summer. So I got zero gaming with my RPG group. But uh, we're going to be gaming after the show tonight. We're playing uh, Only War. It's a uh, Fantasy Flight uh, Warhammer uh, 40k uh, RPG. So that we're like a squad of basically the 40k equivalent of like Russians, and uh, we're hmm. pretty much probably going to get blown up. <laughs> so yeah, we yeah, it's I only been able to play in one session of it due to it's like been our like side game we've decided to turn into a main game so i had i think where i am i went into a 
abandoned like tank. We're, we're like on like some scouting mission, and I discovered a bunch of rotting corpses that ended up having some evil, horrible parasite that I, or disease or something that I may end up killing us, and that's kind of where we left off. <laughs> so, I, sounds yeah. fun. Yes, it, it, it's a percentile based system, and it's it's different. But my group likes experimenting with systems, so. Oh, I like your group. Yeah, we I like your group already. Yeah, we've played everything. We've went from let's see, we're playing this like it's a percentile based system. Prior to that, we were playing first edition AD&D. Prior to that, I think what were we playing? I know we did like some top secret, we did Marvel superheroes, we did Robotech. Um We've done Aces and Eights. We've done Pathfinder. We've done 3.5. We've done uh, Star Wars Revised Core Rules. Um, right. <laughs> so, yeah, we are we bounce around and we try out everything. I uh, One person wants to run a TMNT game. Oh, I want to play that so badly, right? That is a fun game. Yes. I used to run that back in high school. Yeah, that was my first exposure to Palladium, and that just got me hooked on, like, everything else they did. We Oh, yeah, we did Robotech. I have that one. Did you do the turtles with the first edition rules with all the wackiness in it? Uh, we haven't. Oh, when I ran it back in like high school, yes, we haven't ran turtles yet. So that's Uh-oh. coming up. Yeah, the first edition. That's what I had. That's what I ran. Back yeah, the in one high where yeah they had to uh, remove certain things due to um, certain political correctness issues. <laughs> when you start say, saying certain gender uh, preferences or uh, mental illnesses, um, apparently that didn't go over too well. Well, that never happens in role-playing games. Oh, no, doesn't doesn't at all. No, not at all. And it's worth some major buck if you have the game. I'll tell you that. Yeah, the copy I have is like tenth edition. So, well, yeah. yeah, I don't even have my copy anymore. I was lucky. I I found a copy of it at the uh, Denton Recycle books for two dollars oh nice that's a score yeah i was like oh my god this is the first edition i didn't care what printing it was i just wanted it because it was the first edition of the book yeah very nice nice find absolutely i was the, one of my best finds at that store other than the dm's guide with the upside down printed pages yeah <laughs> well hey you know it's the it's the oddball editions that they're kind of neat to have in the collection too right yeah yeah, you, if you just dig through that stuff, you never know what you may find. Like the one year in the Gen Con auction, I found uh, the president of Ralph Partha's monstrous compendium for like two bucks. Wow. It was in a box of monst- uh, second edition monstrous compendiums, just all thrown together. And some other people I knew actually looked at it and just kind of laughed at the stack. And I'm just like, yeah, I never actually got the loose leaf one. So I'm like, I'll buy them. They're two Two bucks each. It was like ten bucks for the entire box with like five binders worth of stuff. It ends up they were Ralph Parthas with like notes written on some of the pages. <laughs> oh man, that would be very cool. Yeah, once I bought it and I saw it had uh, it said Chuck's property and it had Ralph Partha's address in Cincinnati. I'm like, hmm. So I took it to the Ralph Partha booth and they had one guy that had been with the company like forever and he verified the handwriting that it was uh, Chuck Cranes. So cool very cool yes so dig through the gen con auction you never know what people may sell that they don't realize what they have oh Oh, yeah you can find things all over the place too i went to con on the cob in ohio uh, a few years ago and 
uh, I think it was Hell on Wheels who was selling it. Uh, but in their, you know, what they were selling at the convention, uh, I was able to amass an entire first print of Monster Manual Player's Handbook and DMG. Oh. And I think I paid a grand total of like maybe 20 bucks each. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Auctions are good, especially with smaller conventions. People just want to get rid of stuff and you score things like I, Buffy the Vampire Slayer game. One of the most rarest books they have is that Magic Box I don't know if you're familiar with that game. It was called the Magic Box, yeah. the Magic System for the game, and I scored it for a dollar at Mepicon. Oh, nice. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a game I haven't uh, played, but I have watched people play it. I watched some people playing uh, the Buffy game at uh, GaryCon maybe two years ago, and it looked fun. Yeah, I have it. I've just never had a chance to play it. I have that and the Angel RPG. And yeah, well, that- I, yeah I, I, I just never got into the whole Buffy uh, craze, which if I mentioned that on a forum was instantly sure to get me responses. What? Yeah. As, so we're going to just disconnect you now, chat. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's a, a very fun game. You mix that with army of darkness and angel. You can make yourself one heck of a game. They're all well, that's using the same game system yeah. uh, that uh, uh, is used for Margaret Weiss's new Marvel game. Uh, Marvel Heroic Roleplay. Doesn't it use, uh, what is it, the... Uh, Cortex? That's it, Cortex. No, it, um, no, it's different. The system is... Oh, for okay. Buffy. Yeah, because yeah, Eden Studios is the one that did the Buffy game. Cortex yeah. is a Margaret Weiss thing. Uh, the, the new Marvel game that they actually no longer make because yeah. they got rid of the license really? earlier. Yeah, they got rid of the license earlier this year, so they had the license for like a year. That's a dead game. Yeah, it's already I can dead run game. it. Yeah. Uh, the big license Margaret Weiss has now is the Serenity uh, Firefly. Well, yeah, because they don't have to pay a lot of money for it, so that's why they picked it up. Yeah. Their problem is they pick up these licenses with all this money, and they try to sell all these things, and they can't sell as much as they want, so they drop the license all the time. Yeah. Yeah, they cycle through their license because they, they had Smallville at one point. They had Leverage. They had Supernatural. Basically, yeah, they, if it was on WB, they seem to like to get it. And then they drop it when the fans start to like it. <laughs> yeah, one of those people. That's a great game. Really? Thanks. Kill it. We don't, we don't sell it anymore. They did a lot of – I'm one of the disgruntled Cortex fans because they did a lot of announcing of products and then just went right in the middle of all the product releases. Cited, so hey, we're dropping the license. Sorry, guys. These books are not coming out. Here's a new game that we brought out, though. It's like, okay, <laughs> thanks. Anyway, bye. Uh, so anyway, uh, I got to play my game finally this weekend, my 1E game. Uh, continuing along with that, we had some fun. Uh, we're going to continue again next in two weeks uh, for our next game. And then uh, a couple more weeks, and it's going to go on a little bit of a hiatus, and I'll either run something else or just sit back and let someone else run. Hey, have you guys ever tried? I don't know if anybody here does anybody re, uh, read Zelazny's uh, Amber series? No, no. Uh, if you ever get a chance, well, if if you ever get a chance, you ought to read those. Uh, they, they're his first series was called The Chronicles of Amber, but uh, it's really really good. Uh, it came out a long time ago, but uh, they made a game off of it. It was the first one that I'd ever played that used the diceless. Oh, uh, the uh, Jeff Wujic. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, now it's not in print anymore. Uh, I believe they lost the license as well. Uh, but it's it's actually really good. It's it's kind of a cross between playing a role playing game and, and uh, poker. Use a lot of the same uh, dynamics as poker, I'd say. But yeah, it's a fun one. Anyway, I just I didn't know if you guys had ever played it, but I was going to definitely suggest it if you ever get a chance. That's one of the games that I'm running right now on an ongoing basis. Okay. Yeah, you oh. can you can actually find the amber on uh, Diceless on Drive Through RPG. So. Yes, you can. Yeah, it's there, and uh, and if you go to Palladium, like their open house, whenever they actually do it, sometimes they'll have copies of it there. Because they, if you ever go to one of the Palladium's open houses and you can, they have all kinds of interesting stuff they start pulling out that was like, oh, here's a manuscript for one of our books and we're auctioning it off. <laughs> so they, oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. They, when do they have these? I've um, never... Typically, they were doing them the years they didn't go to Gen Con. I went one year and basically they get all the writers, they get all their artists and uh, Kevin Samita. They're all there and you just game with them for all weekend in their warehouse. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they set up Very tables cool. in between pallets of books, and it's a good time. And then, yeah, they just start pulling stuff out of, like, the archive and arc auctioning it off. All, oh, this is a rare first printing. Let's auction it off to, like, the hundred people that are actually here. Oh, my. Nice. Yeah. Good one. Yeah, here's manuscripts. Here's original artwork. Here's, yeah, or just bundles of books. It's really good stuff. It's like they even had book covers for, like, a quarter since they do the perfect binding, they have uncut book covers oh, of the stuff. So nice. I bought a bunch of the Robotech ones. They make great artwork to hang. Very yeah. nice. So Robotech, uh, did they ever take the new editions they had out, the pocket editions, and make them into larger ones yet? I think some of some of the books are the new one. The most recent book is a regular full size. And I huh. know they have variants of the core book. Yeah, I have two of the recent ones they came out within the last two years, but they were pocket size, and I was, they were like, "That's all we offer right now." We're thinking about making it full size, but uh, been waiting for the full size because the pocket size, while it's nice, it's kind of small. Yeah, so they like, wanted to do the manga size. It's the uh, the new Genesis is actually full size, like all the other Palladium books. Well, then I must pick that up. And then <laughs> there's like a hardback version of the Robotech that's really? full size. Yeah, they have like a hardcover edition, and then there's a gold edition a gold edition i have to look that up yeah it's 70 dollars on uh their store um the hardcover for the shadow chronicles the base book is 39 uh 3095 okay um and then they have the new generation which is the full uh, full size and then the genesis pits i think is full size as well so so it was just the uh Macross and Masters that they haven't uh, re-released, to the best of my knowledge, outside of the manga size. Huh, okay. You'll have to send me a link for that later on. I want to see what they look like. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't mind either if you want to send me a link. Because the last one I had that was full size was the one from 87. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I actually have every book of that outside of one of the ship books i'm missing one of those otherwise i'd have like the complete set finally yeah you shouldn't call them that the sh- never mind <laughs> <laughs> play on words folks it's still yeah. safe to listen to everywhere we love you well i really want that gold edition book i'm looking at it now yeah sorry i used to play robotech a lot when i was a kid and i love it yeah 
I did some, re- you know, I read it back in high school again, uh, but I never could find a group at that time that I could play it with, so I never got to play it. It was such a good game. Yeah. I shouldn't say such, but yeah. I don't know. I really want another one. Matt, buy me one. <laughs> yeah, that gold edition is also autographed by like five, six people and limited to 500. So I doubt I'll find one. Oh, uh, they actually have it in stock. Right really? now, yeah, right now, seventy bucks. Hmm. Anybody who wants to donate, donate to Vincent at Art. <laughs> yeah. How would you like to join my new Kickstarter? A Kickstarter things. Yes, a Kickstarter to uh, increase the RFI game library. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we? Why everyone else does that? Yes. Start a we'll all share it. I'll just keep it in my house. Yes. That's when it. you want to know something, email me. Yes. Support the support the Dead Game Society Texas edition chapter <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> by emailing me with your donation. <laughs> anyway, enough chatter about that. Let's head into some sage advice. Sage advice. Sage advice this week, and we have some emails and we have a voicemail. But if you'd like to voicemail or I mean call in, you call 570-865-4210. Where who do we have this week, Matt? Standing by uh, dragons. I think we actually have some uh, draconians because the dragons aren't big enough for our call center. Our the dragons are too big for our call center. I was gonna say, wow, we have a pretty big call center. (laughs) Yes, it's yes, we have a massive call center. Oh. Unfortunately, it's very wide, low ceilings, though, because normally it's inhabited by kobolds. Yeah. yeah. When we go in there, we have to crouch down. So Yeah. They're messy creatures, kobolds. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah we, I, I know. I'm looking at my, the bottom of my shoe right now. So We may need to invest in some slime and pudding to clean things up. Hey, they're the quicker picker-upper. Yep. Just send a gelatinous cube in there. So anyway, 570-865-4210. That's our hotline. And uh, you can email us at rfistaff at gmail.com, as always. Uh, some people ask if we have our own personal go-to emails. Just send it to rfistaff at gmail.com, and it'll bounce over to whoever needs to go to. Uh, I don't think our actual emails are even set up anymore. We used to have, like, Matt at and Vincent at uh, rfipodcast.com, but I don't think they work anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's best just to go through the RFI staff. We all have, end up seeing them so nothing gets missed so let's head to our first uh, voicemail right here hi guys this is dm kojo calling in just wanted to comment on your show about keeping track of time uh i've had read the forum post that uh, nick referred to and uh in, in agreement with you guys on how to handle time uh i also thought uh, tim made a good point that the Newer games seem to uh, hand wave a lot of that time stuff. Uh, I don't know as much from first-hand experience playing myself, but I know that my players who are uh, came to my game from Pathfinder and 3.5, they were much less used to people, uh, you know, encounters happening during the rest times or even the need to rest. Uh, you know, they adjust to it fine, but I, it was it was a bit of a transition for them. So 
I can see where that might be an issue if you've got gamers who are not as familiar with the old school games. But uh, anyways, just wanted to give my two cents on time. Keep up the great work. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, thank you, DM Kojo. Anybody have any comments for DM Kojo? Silence. No. It was it was primarily about keeping track of like in character time. Uh we had a the I think we had Yeah, it was the last episode or the episode before we were talking about uh that whole thing Nick was ranting about time and how to keep track of time and what happens when the characters pause the rest and things like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the use of random encounters to to keep the players actually moving. Yeah, I think Which pers- you really need to do. Well, yeah. The person's argument was that when the players rest, everything pauses <laughs> and nothing happens. And that's usually what happens in, I think, later edition games. They don't have that whole, you know, rush, rush, rush. Things might attack. You need to rest. Because I noticed a lot in fourth edition, you'll have to, when you rest, nothing happens. Unless you well, have- your your power bar goes up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I had to <laughs> that one in. Well, I, I want to say by preference by saying of course if you have an old school dm playing he will throw things at you right but if you have just a normal 4e dm i think he's just gonna kind of say okay you guys rest and yeah. 10 minutes later boom yep. you know so i see his side to that whole situation but no the world does not pause <laughs> no World's- yeah i actually had to house her a little bit on the uh time it takes to relearn uh spells because if you read the books they're really supposed to be getting like a nice eight, 10 hour sleep. And in an adventure, I just don't see it happening. So I tend to house rule it a little bit. I say, you know, you need the bare minimum of sleep to get your spells back, which I actually cut it down to about six hours a night because otherwise Especially if you're throwing wandering monsters, random encounters at them while they're resting, they're never going to get their spells back. Right. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. I uh, usually the most of the people in my group that are magic users they have two players, and they generally either just rest for six hours. I do the same thing you do, Chad. They have to at least get six hours to rest before they recover their spells at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I usually take like whatever the time is to learn the spell that's how much rest you need to learn that one spell and just add it all together so that way kind of like how the old uh, ssi games were where when you had like five different spells they each had so much time that was needed to learn and say you got interrupted during your rest like halfway through you only have half your spells back as as opposed to making it an all or nothing affair Go over that one more time, because I'm sorry, I, I lost you there. Okay. So fifth level spell, for example. Yeah. How much time does he need? Uh, I forget off the top of my head how long is it? does it take to actually... Because in the book it actually says, like, doesn't it actually say, like, each spell level takes so many, like, minutes or to learn? It does, yeah. It does it yeah, does. there is, and I remember because we had to look that up. I also run an ongoing uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons right. uh, kind of a play-by-post game, and this this came up, and that's why we ended up having to house rule it a little bit. Right. I know there is a section. I can't remember it offhand, right. though. I, so I think I, it's in the DMG. Yeah, because usually what I do, whatever that is per level, I just take the total cumulative levels of spells, and that's how much rest is needed 
off of like a base of like four hours. So I'm like, four hours is the minimum sleep you need just to be able to start learning your spells. And then so, I just add that increments on it. Say like a first level spell is 15 minutes. You need four hours and 15 minutes. You get your one first level spell back. If you're trying to learn five spells and they're all first level, so that adds another hour and a half to it. So you need five hours and 15 minutes. Right. And here's it, another thing to think about. If you're required, you know, if you're going by the book and looking at around eight hours of sleep to rememorize your spells, that's the sleep portion. You still have to have your character sit down for like an hour at least or so, and they have to read their books. Right. Yeah, so right. you're really looking at asking the rest of the party if they can hunker down nine or ten hours. Especially for also clerics, too. They have to pray for an they hour. They have to pray. At least, so yeah, and then they don't get their spells until they have a rather lengthy dream, uh, you know, interaction with their deity or a servitor. Now, Matt, would you adjust the learning level for their rememorizing their spells based on their intelligence as well? Uh, I actually don't. Hmm. Um, I just say that's just a flat. Just to get the magical uh, energies replenished, it's a flat rate for everyone. No one has a uh, bigger pipe to the uh, magic of the universe, not for me, anyway. I, I'm thinking. I was thinking about that while you were telling me that, but I was thinking someone with a higher intelligence would obviously have a higher IQ, so they might be able to absorb and learn a lot right. faster. Or maybe I agree. Actually, I like that they can it, grasp it. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, maybe they're very like how. When you look at a spell book, every uh, wizard spell book's different, and they take different lengths of pages to make the same spell. So, yeah, maybe a more intelligent uh, wizard would be able to uh, condense his spells down and make them more efficient. So, yeah, actually, I could see doing that. Adjusting yeah, I totally. A person, a, a, a mage with less intelligence, say they're meeting the bare minimum, would be struggling with the with the mechanics of it every night. It would be like, you know, doing math and... I'm me and Sheldon is, you know, Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory is sitting there doing math with me. And then Chad came over and said, here's a book on, I don't know, calculus. String theory. Yeah, string theory or calculus. And I'm sitting there going, uh, yeah, I'm not that smart. And Sheldon's like, okay, I know how to do this. <laughs> That's be like how it would be. So good, good ideas. I like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Otherwise, like, well, actually, that's in later editions where elves do not need uh, eight hours sleep. Yeah, they just need to zone out and stare at a wall for right. Because otherwise, if they're physiologically elves, would only need four hours sleep. But yet, it says they need eight hours to replenish their spells. That's just kind of like, huh? Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think it was four hours when they were adventuring, but every once in a while they have to sleep for eight hours. I don't, I don't really play play second, so I don't know. Yeah. Sure, people are like, it's not that they're screaming at their right. Players and Sorry, whatever. it's been a while since I cracked open my two e-books. I have a couple. Yeah, I pretty much just tell the elf players uh, if, if, you know, yeah, you don't have to sleep, but you're still in kind of transcendental meditation. So while it may be harder to sneak up on you at night, you're not keeping watch. Right. Absolutely. I like that. All right. So we have a couple emails here. Oh, yeah. Thank you, DM Kojo, again. Please call in every episode. we got to get a streak going with you. This first email comes from Corey, and he said, I have a current game going on, and I'm bringing in a friend from work who has never played RPGs before. We are starting him off as a basic fighter to get his feet wet and then allowing him to keep the character or roll up another one. 
One of the group members suggested we also start him a level higher than normal. Second level instead of first, maybe even third level. What do you all think about this idea? Is it good? Is it bad? Why? Who wants to start that one? Yeah, I. that's not something I would do because since he's at a higher level, even though he's inexperienced, just the raw the stats will make him more of the focal point of the group. And if he's a new player, I don't know if being the focal point of the group is necessarily a good idea. Eh, I'm going to say it's a good idea, only for the simple fact that if a new player, you want him to get him hooked on the game and like the game. So if he's a little bit more powerful than the rest of the group, that means, like you said, he'll be the focal point, but he'll be also making a lot of decisions to help the group, which will get him the bug going in him. So I do like the idea. I'm not so much for it, only because if I've always said that a new player probably should stick to a fighter because it's fairly straightforward, it's very simple, and at low levels, fighters can really kick butt. If I would never recommend a new player to start out as a magic user, and really it's most of the time, if if you, most people think it's the magic user at low level that's boring to play. And if you want to give the new player a character and you don't want him to walk away and say, eh, then you don't want to give him a magic user. But you don't really want to give him a magic user to begin with if he's a new player because it's a little tricky to play magic users the correct way. Even at high level, uh, they're going to be casting lightning bolt in a subterranean tunnel and not understand that they're about to bring down the roof. (laughs) Uh, The same with a fireball. I'll throw a fireball. And every other player in the room starts screaming. I would say keep them at the same level but give them a character class that they can quickly grasp, which would, I think would be a fighter. Right. Maybe a yeah. thief. Yeah, I was just going to say a thief. I had a new person in my group, new to role-playing, who played a magic user in our secondary group, and he went up all over the place, and I think he died once or twice, and he came over to my group, and he's like, I want to try something a little easier and better. I was like, well, why don't you try a thief? You know, you seem like he likes to role play and stuff. So thief would be perfect for him. And he's shined with the thief so far. So absolutely. It's a great class, too. All right. Cool, Corey. Thanks. Next one comes from when W.E.N. Quick question. I want to do a massive battle, like on the scale of hundreds of men attacking the PC's base of operations. Is there a way to do massive attacks without doing a lot of boring roles that will have players yawning and walking around while waiting for results? I'd really love to involve my players. Wasn't there a battle system for first edition at one point? Yeah, there was. Yeah. yeah, Bloodstone Wars came out with a battle system. Okay, that's what I thought, but I think that's a lot of rolling and Yeah, yawning. it makes it more war gamey. So. I don't know. For massive battles, you can do a lot of quick rolls if you really don't want to get into details right. like doing centile rolls. Yeah. You could also alter Stratego. Yeah. I mean, I'm not kidding. You could take Stratego rolls if you're talking about massive army battles. Why not? Risk. Right. Yeah. Risk, yeah. You know, what we had in one of my uh, games in my home group, we did a ma- had a massive battle, but what we did is we broke it down to small scenes of this massive battle. So, like, one character was 
like trying to stop the orcs from storming the wall. So as the orcs are putting up the ladders, he's doing one thing, and another player, like the magic users up on a tower, casting his spells coming down, and it's all like small scenes. If you think of like Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers, yes, it's a massive battle, but you take little snippets and focus on the individual players in this massive battle, and by how well they do at that my, uh, micro level, it affects the overall macro level of the battle. So if the players are doing well in their individual scenes, then the battle starts going their way on a, the grand scale. If Maybe if one side's failing the others, some players are failing, other players are succeeding, maybe the, it's a more even. Or if everyone's just having problems doing their in their own little scene, maybe the battle's going against them. And that way you can keep the players involved and they can still role play and interact and feel like they have an influence in the battle without getting bogged down into these thousand uh, knights are doing battle with these thousand orcs, and we must now roll 200d6 to determine the outcome. 200d6, Matt, really? Yeah. I don't have that many d6s unless I I break out Monopoly. I may, actually. I Well, I probably at least have 100. Well, if we counted the little mini pirate dice... From like the Pirates of the Spanish Main, I probably do have close to 200. Or the little hero click ones. Yep. But you know what, Matt? When you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, and actually, I was thinking about uh, the Chronicles of Amber again in the book. There is a massive uh, sea battle, and the main character is pretty much kicking butt, uh, but ultimately they lose. But they go into this whole thing about how, even though they're, you know, as they're marched as prisoners of war, Everybody's giving them wide berth because everybody remembers how much it took to bring them down. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if if the players are doing good, so then they'll the ultimate like. What about if you want to introduce? They do great, but they but the army the battle is still lost. Is there a way to work that in? Uh, you could. My only concern would be the players would may think they were railroaded and the, the outcome, no matter how well they did. They were still going to lose. Right. And see, that's what I was wondering about is is the players can shine. I'm just wondering, I still think, you know, if they're doing great, well, they're the heroes. They're supposed to be pretty, right. you know, they're supposed to shine. But if they, if the ultimate army that they're fighting on wins also, it almost makes it seem like it almost downshadows them because it means, well, everybody was fighting that good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I guess I would still want to introduce some randomness. I might ask them. Uh, Colin did this uh, actually really well at at the first GaryCon we went to, which I uh, was GaryCon two. Uh, he had to do a big massive battle, and one of the things uh, that he did first before the battle even began, he had the characters. We were all involved in the in the tactics. You know, we had in character, we our characters had maps of the terrain out an um, an army was marching on the castle that we were in. And we were called upon to not only fight in the battle, but also be advisors, military advisors to the way the strategy and tactics were going to work out. So we ended up doing something like what you were saying, Matt, with the with the individual battle scenes. But the overall battle was also influenced by us. Because Colin could take a look, he could listen to what our strategies were, and he could say, "Okay, right. 
I know what the other army is going to do. I'm now going to factor this in. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, actually do like that because then the players will feel like even though we individually did well, our tactics weren't good and that's why we failed. As long as the players never felt feel like this battle was always we were always going to lose it no matter what we did. I I really yeah, tried no, to avoid I this. Yeah, I would never, yeah. And, and you know, that's yeah, they're not going to like that. Right. So as long as yeah, like if you give them a some influence in the uh the grand tactics and the uh battle from the uh, operational level then at that point yeah you could say yeah you as soldiers you succeeded as generals you failed horribly and then at that mm-hmm. point the players can be like okay we're the ones that caused this battle to fail because we failed on at the grand scale right or you could even as the gm you could write down you know what tactics you know what strategy the opposing army is going to use what if you write it down so nobody thinks that you just oh well i know what they're going to do now i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to counter it you could write down what their plans are kind of put it in a sealed envelope and then yeah. when it's all said and done you can say you lost because of this, and you pull out their stra- their strategy, and you can say, you guys decided to rush headlong into battle, whereas they were using flanking movements, and they encircled you and caught you in a pincher, and, you know, and, and basically they took out your sides. They cut off your supply line if right. it's going to be a long term. But you have a re- – you can – they can look at it and just say, oh, yeah. Right. Oh, we forgot about that. So, exactly. yeah. Right. I, I like that idea. Hmm. That's a good question, though. Yeah, something to chew on. Anybody out there who has any advice, please email us, and we'll send it over to uh, Mr. Wen just to see. Anyway, let's go on to our next email. So this one comes from Billy, and uh, he's just curious if any of us have ever used the 1E rules to play a superhero-type game, like a Marvel or a DC Comics game. Uh, No, the only... The only thing that I've ever used from that era would be Villains and Vigilantes or DC Heroes game or TSR's Marvel. I've never actually taken the 1E rules and played a superhero game. Matt, you? I haven't either. I mean, I can kind of see how you may if you started just taking spells and calling them superpowers and just giving players uh, unfettered access to like a uh, specific spell set. So you can kind of shoehorn it in, but uh, there you would, and you would just have to like rework the flavor a lot. <laughs> so if you wanted to do like a modern day, unless you did like medieval superheroes. Well, that's a good idea. I yeah, always, no, I totally agree. I always think the villains of vigilantes was always the equivalent to the D and D system of the day. I don't know why, but, I always, ever, every time I think about it, I think of that game always. Yeah, yeah I liked Villains of Vigilantes. Uh, I played that. I always remember thinking, you know, for such a thin book, there sure is a lot of number crunching, but it yeah. was a fun game. And, of course, the game that I tended to stick or two was TSR's Marvel Superheroes because it was back at that time, and it was such an elegant, simple system that you could always pop it out and go right into it. I know that D&D, uh, TSR... Yeah, did put crossover rules for Boot Hill and Gamma World. I they never did anything for superheroes, but like Matt was saying, yeah, you could definitely take spell effects and simply say, don't worry about the memorization rule. 
you know what was really cool about the TSR Marvel game? That, like you said, was so elegant. It was so nicely put together that you can practically take any one of those cartoons as you were as a kid and make up a game with that system in mind. Mm-hmm. I've done it yeah. with G.I. Joe, Transformers. Yeah. You can squash them into the game and it works just well. Oh, yeah. It was great. And the fact that it used the uh, the battle... Uh, I forgot what they now what they call it. The, the, the graph rip. at the back. Yeah, face rip. Uh, basically... You can, it's like a slide rule. You can shift it back, you know, columns. You can move it forward columns. You can say, well, yeah, he's doing this. But again, going back to the whole, you know, planning affects the outcome. And if you think they're making a great plan, you can give them bonus column shifts. Uh, If you think they're really not thinking this out, you can give them penalties on the column shifts. It's it's just so nice and easy and, and very intuitive. Yeah, there was once one power I remember in the Marvel book. I think it might have been the Ultimate Powers. That was, I just wanted to rip my hair out because it was kind of one of those things that no matter what you did, and the player just used it. It was would just screw up every little plan that you had. It was something to do with morphing elements. Yeah, like you can morph somebody into whatever you want. Um, was, I had two players in my game with that power when I yeah, ran Marvel. It was a way to get around it. it was just like a high turn them into a duck. It was like ugh. Right, yeah, and we, because we randomly rolled powers out of the Ultimate Powers book for my game, and two players ended up with that power, and it was Yeah, I love that book, but you're right, that is a, that's a tough one to get around. It's because, yeah, because there's no opposed roll. Yeah. So it's just, if they make the roll, they hit it. And then there goes your NPC. Right, so what I, yeah, because my players, they were, uh, morphing specific body parts like they love uh converting feet uh person's feet to air or oxygen that was like their favorite tactic um they took out Sabretooth that way because he was trying to run at them and poof he has no feet and he fell yeah and but and then they locked him up in Rikers Island at which point though I said since he had regeneration his foot grew back in Rikers Island they didn't have the proper restraints and he escaped so there's ways around it because the effect isn't necessarily permanent, but depending on what they use it on, especially if they're just removing specific body parts, uh, you could easily kill someone. They, but yeah. uh, I had the way I ended up having to challenge my players was just through making time an issue and having like multiple uh, foes. So yeah, you can take out one at a time, but if there's five villains, one of them's trying to grab the hostage, and you three or four others are attacking you, what do you do? You could always impose, uh, you can, you could impose limits on it by simply saying, okay, it will do as it reads in the book, but you're going to have to have a very good knowledge of that creature's anatomy that you want to change it into. Or you could say it's extremely draining. So yeah, the more yeah. minor the change you do, the less draining it is on you. Yeah, yeah. One character actually had that drawback, where it actually drained. It cost him a health to actually use the power, and then I also required they actually had to be able to see it what they were targeting. They couldn't sit, like. Well, I know, like they couldn't target someone's internal organs because you can't oh, actually see it. So that's, exactly. Yeah. So, so at that point, they just went for extremities <laughs> or eyeballs. <laughs> As, that's a good idea. It's something minor, an eyeball. Cool. 
Right, especially when uh, Red Skull's trying to raise Cthulhu and he's reading out of a book. Because that's happened in my game. He was about, Red Skull's a, like one paragraph away from raising Cthulhu and they decide to remove his eyeball so he couldn't finish reading the book. That's and right at that moment, Red Skull blinked. Yeah. <laughs> curses! Yes, curses. Sorry, he, you can't see his eyeballs. You removed his eyelids instead. That would uh, cause enough pain uh, to stop reading, uh, though. Yeah. But yeah, that's kind of interesting. I like that. I liked how your group did that. That's cool. Yeah. Okay, so this next email comes from Matthew. Matt, are you emailing our show? Maybe. Okay. What are your thoughts on allowing characters to start at higher levels, such as 5, 10, 15, or even 20? Why do a lot of people seem to reject this and rather just start at 1? But then every once in a while, you get find a group of players that just loves to start at higher levels. Matthew. It's the connection to the character. That's probably the reason why people don't want to start at higher right. levels. In I also, totally agree. Yeah. And what I found is, uh, depending on the game system, uh, starting at a higher level can be kind of confusing, especially as you get into more modern, uh, like th- like either three point five fourth editions, the Star like Star Wars saga. If you have all those options at like tenth, twelfth level that you didn't grow into, you just get thrown into them. You kind of don't know what to do as a player. Yeah. You get overwhelmed with the choices, whereas if you started that character with level one, it, it was a progression. As your character learned the skills, you also learned them as well as a player and learned to use them and learned to use them effectively. So I th- especially like in first edition with a magic user, throwing, some, throwing someone all the choices of like a eighth or ninth level magic user might be overwhelming if they're not a really experienced player when you're like, yeah, you have these 20 spells, what do you do? Hmm. Whereas if you're a first level or second level magic user, you have two or three choices. And then as you grow with, as your character grows, you're as a player growing with your character and you now know how to use, you're learning as a player, every power as they go up, as your character learns them. So I think you have a better understanding of a character you take from level 1 to 10 and how to play them as opposed to if you just started at 10. Yeah, yeah I have no problem with uh, people. You know, I run games all the time at conventions where we have to, you know, change the levels. But if I had to guess one reason why it, it can be a pain in the butt for you really wouldn't want to do, say, a pickup game at a high level, I don't think, because... It's going to take people a long time to make their character. Unless the DM provides them, of course. Exactly. And, but in the case of, say, a, just a pickup game, you know, hey, let's do this. Then it's, odds are low that the DM is going to be carrying around such characters. So if, he, if it's something planned and the DM has already created uh, pregens, or you happen to have, your group happens to have characters at level, which I guess would mean that you're not really starting at that level. But otherwise, you're really going to need to sit down and, and put a, the higher the level you are, like Matt was saying, the more magic users have more spells. Fighters need to pick out more specialties uh, if you're allowing specialization. There, there's just a lot more that goes into it when you create on the fly a high-level character. Yeah, all your followers and henchmen and 
everything that goes with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. If you're if you're going to start, yeah. If they have land and they probably do at a high level, you, obviously a lot of people just skip that part. But I mean, that's something to think about too. Hmm. Definitely. Okay. So there you go. Uh, last email comes in from Jeff, and he says, Matt and Vince, you guys seem to wrestle talk a lot on the show, and that is cool. My question to you is, have you ever played the old WWF RPG? If so, what are your experiences that you've had with it? I recently found it in a flea market comic book sale bin for $2. Jeff. I've never played it. I have it. So I don't know, Matt. You said you've dealt I've once. Played, I've played it a lot. I a actually lot. have two copies of the book. I used wow. to play it a ton in high school. I made a majority of like the WWF, WCW, and ECW guys from like the mid nineties. That's awesome. In character sheets. I mean, I was I was running my own feds with it. Actually, just solo. What I would do is I would just take the two guys. I would make the own angles, the uh, storylines in my head, and do the matches and it. The game system itself is just uh, very much very tactical uh, mm-hmm. positioning. It's like you have your two characters will start off uh, like standing. Whoever's the more popular of the two has the equivalent of initiative and picks their move. And then depending on whether they hit their move or didn't determines the new positions they're at, then you have your chart where you can pick your moves from that position. So it's very tactical. And if that's not uh, your thing, you probably it won't be that enjoyable. Um, average match take. Um, it just depends on if you are start. I would say the average match. I mean, I could burn through a match in five ten minutes. You can kind of use like real time for your matches. I've uh, for like the actual equivalent match length in in game. Uh-huh. Um. I mean, I've had matches, like I made uh, the, I had Arn Anderson and Ric Flair take on the Steiner brothers. I had that, that match went two moves. Was this before Scott Steiner became so big that he couldn't do the Frankensteiner Yeah, this, this was like 1994 Scott Steiner. Oh, the good one, okay. Yeah, not Big Papa Pump. The one so that... to be the best, did they have to beat the best? Absolutely. Absolutely. That is how you gain. Yeah, because actually the way the system was set up, you gain popularity by one playing to the crowd during your matches like after you hit a move it does so much damage that damage you then turn into points to reposition yourself and your opponent say you knock your opponent down you can then spend points to pick them up you can then spend more points to whip them into the ropes and then whip yourself into the rope so you can do like a running clothesline and, that sounds fun. And then, like, if you're running, it adds, like, a D6 to damage. If you come off the top rope, it adds, like, 3D6 to the move you do. And Ow. It's... Very cool. So, yeah. I just want to play the Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. I actually never made the Honky Tonk Man. I never went back into the... I really made mostly, like, the mid-90s guys. I never actually went back and did the 80s. How could you not create the greatest intercontinental champion of all times? I, I don't know. That's right. And you get to hit people with a guitar. Yeah. So, I, I even made like New Japan guys. I had like I made like Jushin Thunder Liger. Did you at least make the greatest tag team in the world, the million the million uh, money incorporated? I IRS actually came with the game. And I th- I'm pretty sure I made Ted DiBiase. 
I think I also made Virgil too. Did you make that Money Incorporated had? They all just ran out of the ring and never completed a match for about a year and held the titles. No, didn't quite do that. Um, That's what they did in real life. Yeah. Did you ever have Hulk Hogan come to the aid of the Macho Man? Uh oh. No, I didn't make. That's a golden moment. Yes. Yes. I didn't make Elizabeth. Uh, Macho Man also came with the game. Uh, Nice. What about Disco Inferno? I think I actually do have Disco Inferno. I actually have a folder with all these characters. I had like 90 wrestlers in all I ended up making for this game is how much I played it back in my teenage years. So when you played it as a teenager with your friends, I assume, right? Not um, actually, I played some with my friends, mostly by myself. I just I played it solo. Because, right, that's cool. I'm going to do that, too. But I'm just wondering, when you play with your friends, how long did an average game take to play? It really – it depends on how long they want to, like, mull over the moves they do. If they is just, it really boring? Like, the players start yawning? or No, just, we were actually amused because it's not – it's like you pick your move. I then pick, like, the move I'm trying to counter with, and then we roll our dice. And then you just keep doing that. Now, if you had, like, a group of six players, that could get boring for those that weren't involved in the match – I only when I played it there was three people, myself and two others. And the third person, like two people would be in the match, the third person would play the referee. So you could actually what if you had a third or fourth person play people, other wrestlers that then got into the fight. You yeah, you they, could do that too. What we did is we actually made our own like stables. We would each have two or three wrestlers and a referee. And then like work all of our storylines. So we could then say, Oh, my other guy now comes out to aid this wrestler. So, oh, so you can have like the NWO, all 200 people running out to help somebody. Right. We each kind of had our own factions. Right. And you could do tag team matches too. Or right. You could do big steel cage yeah, matches. Yeah. We would do like Royal Rumbles and all of that. So, Hell in a Cell. Yeah. Oh, man. I just had to laugh at that because the NWO at one point was what? Everybody in WCW but Lex Luger? <laughs> and actually, at one point, he was NWO. Yeah, I remember that part, but yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. made me laugh. Anyway, yeah. enough wrestling talk. You know, people hate the wrestling talk. Oh, so. yes. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, I just have to, a friend of mine actually got to give the, do the Wolfpack thing, hand sign with Kevin Nash, so that was cool. Nice. But you know what? Wrestling's fake, so let's get back to Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. <laughs> the thing, the problem with wrestling is it doesn't have fairies. I can't say it doesn't have dragons yeah. because, um, Go out there and look for dragon dra- any match well, with actually, dragon. Well, actually, you did have dragon. A dragon in wrestling. Uh, Ricky the uh, dragon. Ricky the dragon steamboat. However, if you find dragon dragon, he's actually in a dra- full dragon suit. Uh, so look up your dragon dragon matches. Oh, did- one more. If you do Marvel TSR's Marvel, you can still have professional wrestling. Yes. Because I, I, there was a professional wrestling group in the Marvel comics. The thing actually did Yeah, the a- ultimate class wrestling. Yeah. UCW. Uh, they all had like super strength and stuff. Yep. Very fun. Oh, anyway. The ultimate muscle cartoon. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and that Hulk was a good Hogan and Friends. What? Then they had a Saturday morning cartoon of Hulk Hogan and Friends. Yep. Or uh, Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. That's it. Yeah, that was dark on one point. <laughs> Typical. Of all the evil creatures in the world, I had to find one with table manners. And what are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. 
So table matters this week, we're going to be talking about uh, one big topic here. A lot of people like to do this, throw this in their game every once in a while, or maybe they just want some ideas for using dragons. So I uh, scoured the shelves, and I wanted to pull out something a little bit different, a little bit that just isn't TSR. So I grabbed Rolaids 721, and it's all about dragons. Uh, it's an excellent book, and uh, I don't, I, I've had this for a while. And Chad, you said you've had this book as well. Yeah, I've had it for a while. I've never actually had a chance to use it, though. Uh, it's actually really cool because it not only does it give you, you know, the typical dragons, but it really breaks down how to create your own dragon. And now when I say create your own dragon, it's not just, hey, you pick a color and, you know, here's his name and blah, blah, blah. No, they go into detail, like rolling up the stats and what each stat's going to do, what the stamina. And dragons have egos, and if they get into a battle, you got to roll on their ego chart to see what happens to them based on the battle, what they lose or if they win. And, of course, dragons go through different phases as they grow up. They molt. So as when they're a younger dragon, obviously they're not as powerful as if they're going to be a great dragon or a really ancient dragon. And they have different phases listed here for them. And based on that, their breath weapon will be increased, their hit dice increased, their armor class goes down. So it's a really, really cool book. And we'll go into a little bit more depth about it. But did anyone take a look at uh, Dragon Magazines? Oh, I did. What would you find there? Uh, there's some really neat stuff in there. Some of it I already knew. But just going back over it again, you know, I remembered a lot of things and, and, and saw a few new things that I just really liked. Uh, for instance... One thing I thought was kind of a cool article uh, was found in, uh, where is that? One second here. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Uh, Gregory Wren, back in issue number 50, wrote an article called Self-Defense for Dragons. And it's actually pretty cool because a lot of the, uh, a lot of, of criticisms I, I hear about first edition dragons in the monster manual is they're just incredibly too weak which I agree to a large extent. But if you read this article, they talk about, you know, dragons have a lot more going for them upstairs and, uh, than a lot of other races. And, and they know how to make the, the most out of their natural weaponry as well as other things. For instance, you know, their wings, okay, they're not just folded up against their body when they're fighting on the ground. If you ever tried to chase a chicken, which is the example uh, used, you'll notice that a chicken will buffet you with its wings when you're trying to get a hold of it, a goose, you know, something like that. Well, dragons are going to be using those big wings of theirs and say they're, they may use it in con in conjunction with their breath weapon. So, if you if you have a red dragon and he blasts one area, now he can't blast to the sides of him in, unless he's looking that way, in which case he's not hitting whoever's in front of or behind him. But what if he does that and then also starts fanning those flames? Anything that's burning now gets even hotter and, he, and starts spreading all around him. Or say a, a blue dragon starts fanning his wings and whips up a dust storm of, of you know, of, of abrasive sand and rocks. Or a white dragon does the same thing, except it's throwing very sharp shards of ice all around after it shoots its 
icy breath weapon. Those are really kind of neat tricks right there. Not to mention the fact that the monster manual really typically only gives them the, uh, the claw claw bite. But what about those back claws, especially against a giant uh, sized opponent? They're going to be using all four claws for disemboweling, much like if you ever played with a cat. They'll use their back claws and it hurts. These are little things, though, that the dragons can do that will really ramp up their ability to do some damage. Absolutely. And I have to say, after reading this dragon's book and reading over some of the dragon magazines, that when I was a kid, I was always like, oh, yeah, the best dragon's the black dragon. You know, obviously because I like black as a kid. But after reading this and, and as I've grown older, I've come to appreciate white dragons quite a bit. I just don't know. Maybe it's because of their ability to shoot the ice particles and just as pure white because it just looks beautiful. I don't know. But I've come to appreciate them. Well, they live in a rugged land. It's, you know, they're in the Arctic, essentially. It's 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 hard to get to where they are. Uh, and they're not dumb. A lot of people have this perception of white dragons as, well, they're the dumb dragons. I don't think any dragon is dumb. I think that they may be not as smart, <laughs> but they're still pretty crafty. And they had an article also in Dragon, one of the later ones. It was really more after second edition it came out, but I love the article. I can't remember what uh, issue it was in, though, now. And it's the ecology of the dragon redone. And it's told in a story format in this inn where these 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 adventurers are talking about how they want to go out. They want to kill a dragon. And they're talking to another like couple that's there. And then this old man comes in and the couple at first is talking and they're saying, well, are you really sure you want to do that? Because, you know, we fought dragons and here's how they do it. And the people said, well, what about white dragons? They can't be that hard. And he's, you know, they're and, and their their lairs uh, are probably just barren, dismal places. And, and these people are saying, really, actually, even all dragons in, in their own fashion make beautiful lairs. Even the white dragon. Imagine a, a, a cave of ice where the light is scintillating off of all and it, creating rainbow effects and, and it, it could be very beautiful in its own way, and and white dragons can be downright nasty as far as the way that they think. Uh, it ends up at the end of the ecology uh, article. Uh, the they the the not the group of people who want to kill dragons, but the other three go outside and they find out the the couple are actually two silver dragons in human form, and the old man who came in and, and corrected them uh, a couple of times. Uh, it turns out to be a gold dragon and uh, surprising even the two silver dragons. It's, it's, a, it's a fun article, but it's a really good article if you want to read the mindset of dragons as told by dragons. And it, you know, I thought it was really neat uh, because they also go into even good dragons can be greedy. Uh, a lot of people don't think about that also. But yeah, exactly. I think white dragons are very underappreciated. Okay, is Santa Claus in the background? What the hell is that? Third oh, time. you know what? I'm sorry. That's my cat. <laughs> I wondered what. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that message. I'm like, what's that? I heard ching ching. ching. I'm like, is Santa Claus mm-hmm. landing now? We're talking about like snow. Yeah, here he's, Santa Santa Claus. he's flying in on his white dragon. <laughs> yeah, he heard talk of snow and in he came. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just looking uh, after reading this description. Obviously, uh, the the white dragons are lawful good, good, but it doesn't have to. They don't have to be lawful good. It's well, true. not the white dragon. No, oh, you no, mean no. in 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 roll aids? Right. Okay. Roll aids that they consider white dragons lawful, and they put lawful slash good. So in your campaign, it doesn't have to be lawful slash good. It could be anything you want it to be. Remember, it's your world, your rules. So. Right. Just because it's printed in the book doesn't mean it has to happen. You don't like the rule, throw it out. If you want to make your white dragons, I don't know, neutral, you want to make them chaotic evil, whether it's chaotic evil, it doesn't matter. But they list them as, uh, where is that line here? Uh, white dragons are known as the uh, storytellers and singers of the dragon clans. So they list them even there as elegant dragons. Uh, A far cry from the D&D equivalent. Yeah, definitely. But then this broke down the dragons from smallest size, which would be the silver dragon, all the way to the largest size dragon, which would be the spectral dragon, which would be like a a multi-headed dragon or maybe something equivalent to look like Tiamat from the old cartoon of D&D. That's what I equalize it to. But uh, And red dragon being the second biggest kind. But in this book, I like how they took the dragons in the Rollways book and broke it down. They each have their own individual clan of dragons, and the dragons all have their own separate type of rules. And they all look at each other a certain way, and they right. judge each other a certain way. It's not just like, you know, we're all dragons, and we love each other. Ooh, no, dragons do not get along with, necessarily with other dragons. Dragons uh, are kind of like cats in that way. Yeah. They, they'd rather not have any company. But they'll tolerate it if it's the right type of company, or if or if that company could do something for them. It's like in D&D, I find it highly amusing that copper dragons and brass dragons do not get along, simply because the brass dragons try to steal all the thunder of the copper dragons, because they're <laughs> similar colors. Yeah. <laughs> and the clans, like, battle for, like, the po- ultimate power of who's going to be the top dog dragon, who's going to make all the decisions, which I really found interesting. And, of course, they hate all humans, so... <laughs> That's always a, that. Yeah. Uh, they only consider a certain race. Um, what was the, it? The dra- dragon Rider or the. Dragon Lord. Well, you're not supposed to call them Dragon Lords in front of a dragon, but those are the. They have Dragon Lords, which are the people that would actually function with a dragon, ride a dragon. Kind of like in Kren, they have the uh, Dragon High Masters. Yeah. And those are the only people that get a, a little bit of respect from the dragons. They, to- oh. they get tolerated, is the best way to look at it. Now, one thing that goes beyond is you can take a dragon and use it as a player character. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, this guy on the ground, two feet, you know, he's a dragon. He's about maybe 10 feet tall. No, he's an actual dragon. Right. It's it's not the normal type thing you're thinking. It's an actual dragon. Yeah, it's, it's as if you're actually playing the monster as a player character. But unlike if you did it using the... Dragons from Dungeon uh, D and D, where you just take the stats out of the D and the monster manual and use them. This actually has the uh, rules for actually creating PCs and level advancement and the aging process. It, yeah, so it's very interesting if you actually wanted to, instead of going to slay the dragon and take the loot, you're now the dragon trying to keep your loot. And then there's. After you do that, you make up your character, you go through all the molting phases, and as your character grows in age, you get to pick whichever little powers, and I'm doing the Dr. Evil quotes in the air, 
that you want to pick off there. And there's four molting phases as your dragon ages. There's a really cool dragon biology article. I shouldn't say article, write up of how a dragon is actually like his insides. You guys take a look at that at all? Yeah, the nice. Yeah, they do. They go over the shape of the skull and that sort of thing. Where the dragon like heart is. Organs, the... yeah. How his how big his heart is and where things are located and how thick the skin is. You could do random rolls if you want to make a custom type dragon, which is kind of cool. Depending on skin, it's pseudo lungs, it's hollow bones, the wingspan. Really cool. Yeah. You can do evolution and mutations. Uh, this is a really good book. Yeah, you can definitely make some unique dragons with it's just like some of the mutations it has the dragon can astrally project itself or instead of having a pair of wings it has two pairs of wings and or like gems for eyes and so you can just put all kinds of little twists on the dragon so that way the play when a player comes up to it they will uh be like wait a minute this just isn't a typical dragon hmm so you know what i really found interesting was the whole head shaping picture and description how the dragons will mold uh, when they're molding the, the baby dragons, they'll kind of reform their skulls to look something different. I just kind of thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I oh, I think it's very detailed. It, you know, obviously it brings it back to a more realistic look on, on fantasy. Uh, as children grow, their skulls, change that's why at times they look more like one parent than the other i mean it'd be interesting i like how they kind of pulled that into dragons and there's also well it goes into the realism of what happens with dragon do they have a disease or parasites you know things like that what would happen to a normal animal stomach worms red eyes shell plague and then we go to an awesome article i keep saying article like this is a magazine an awesome write-up i'll say of the dragon culture, and they actually give you a whole entire breakdown of a cave of a dragon. And I thought it was really cool. And they even include the little termites and bugs in the cave, too, which would be listed in there. I wonder what they're writing on the walls, though, because the picture has writing next to it. Yeah, it's like, maybe it's like a warning or something to people that may wander in. We will eat you, don't... We are watching you. Yeah, because it... And yeah, and it's like in the ecology section, it actually went into what the different dragons eat because not all dragons. Uh, some dragons prefer cow, some prefer sheep. It, I found that rather amusing. And this book also has like a setting attached to it as well as most of the Rolaids books do. And it actually says, yeah, there's like millions of animals eaten a year by dragons in this land. So. I think it was cool how they, they included a air shaft in the cave so the dragon can, you know, burn his fire and the smoke will go out. Yeah. You see that? Yeah. Hmm. He's got his now, sleep. this is interesting, too, because there's a section on dragon clerics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Dragon Magazine covered that also. Uh, they, there's an article you can find also in Dragon Magazine that talks about dragon clerics. Uh, so I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. They differ a little bit, but yeah, that's kind of neat. Nobody really ever thinks about dragons, draconic priests. Because they're very (laughs) self-centered. Probably. 
But I do like how they have the breakdown. Like when most people think about dragons, they think about this large cave, and there's a dragon at the very end sitting on his hoard of gold, and that's his whole lair. They actually break it down as there's the main cave where the dragon would probably do most of his things in, like whatever, eat, walk around. Then he has his little area that he sleeps in. And I guess the other pits are just where he finds food. Right. (laughs) He has his little water hole down at the bottom. Yep. He has his treasure cave where he hides his treasure. He's not actually sleeping on his treasure like we've seen in cartoons. And there's the little enclaves where it looks like they actually do sleep. So, yeah, I thought it was called a little nesting cave there. Yeah. <laughs> the excavations cave. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you got to include that too. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not, maybe I missed it. I'm not understanding the termite. Well, the termites are the ones that actually made the cave for the dragons. The dragons and the termite queen, they, they get along great. So they work together. So because the termite queen can communicate telepathically with the dragons. So. The termites, in turn, uh, will make the layers for the dragons. Uh, and at which point, the uh, dragons leave the termites alone. So they have a nice symbiotic relationship. Yeah. yeah they like to snuggle at night, you know. Right. <laughs> and, and this is where I, the picture there, when he's greeting the sun at the top, the dragon sitting at the very top of the uh, mountain there, kind of reminds me of a cat sitting in the sun. So there goes back to your cat reference. Yeah. I always think dragons, you know... They're actually, at least to me, they seem to be a lot like cats. Yeah. You know, they their world tends to center around themselves. Right. Very like, true. And they're very predatory. Yeah. Uh, and then we have some more information about the dragon clans going into more detail about them. And then how often, and then we jump into a big magic section about dragons. Yes. A little before that, though, I found interesting the dragon dreams. When a dragon yeah. dreams, their dreams become reality. Yeah, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you could do a lot with that, too. Right. Yes. If a, uh, and any damage a dragon sustains in their dreams, it actually happens to them. Yeah. So if they could dream they're doing battle with a bunch of dwarves and any damage they take in that dream is actually real damage they wake up with. Or, and then there's like one, they dream of a tornado, so a tornado actually happens, or a storm. Uh, yeah, it's like if they dream of snow, a snowstorm falls within 1d4 miles of the sleeping dragon. So you could even just have a plot be very random inclement weather falls upon a town that makes no sense for the season. Then the players discover, oh, it's a dragon that's been taking a nap. Yeah, and this really, this whole dream section, because you can see other dragons dream the future, like you said, really kind of reinforces that whole stereotype, well, what do we do? Let's go ask the ancient dragon, because they know all the answers. Right Right here gives you the explanation of how the dragon knows just about everything there is to know about important stuff. Right. Right, and according to this, dragons are all part, they're basically all dragons are demigods. Right, yeah, they all have part of a god in them, hence why they are so powerful. And actually, and proud and arrogant. Yeah, and actually, that's kind of ancient Egyptian cat, cats, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. So we're yeah, they're scaled cats. Except the Egyptians worshipped them and killed them. Uh, well, yep, the second part is the one the dragons might have an issue with. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Excuse me, you want to what? Yeah, I don't think so. Excuse yeah. me while I take a deep breath. I'm going to inhale now. Goodbye. Yeah. Or excuse me while I nap and a meteor shower falls on you. <laughs> and then they uh, talk a little bit about some guards and some pets of dragons and how things, and then they go into talking about the uh, the mites yeah. that uh, Matt was talking about, how they work. Yeah, uh, I, I'm amused by the sensor dog with, like, the yeah. uh, My Favorite Martian antenna. Well, you know... <laughs> Yeah, they they speak tell the the dogs themselves actually speak telepathically. <laughs> They're kind of like their guard dogs. Yeah, it's rather amusing. Uh, the the termites. They talk more about the queen termite, and then they go into some really cool plant lore, which would be excellent for doing a book on alchemy for a character. Oh yeah. Or- a book on healing potions, I should say. Right, because your typical healing potions aren't going to work on a dragon, so you would use the stuff listed here to have your cure light wounds for a, a dragon because they actually have like a little pouch, like a marsupial, that yeah. they keep it in. They keep the, their herbs and uh, other plants in for when they need them. But this could give you a really like this breakdown. They give you plants and the effect and what percentage you need to do and blah blah blah. But it gives you a really cool idea of what you can write up for your player characters that want to do herbalism. Oh, totally. And sorry, then, I said alchemy. Sorry. Yeah, and then it also goes into uh, minerals and stones as well. What to do with some of those gemstones your players find? Yeah, that's really I forgot about that and now i want to include it now because there's some really cool ideas in here right it's like a cat's eye you can use it to uh make rings of invisibility or absolutely or an ivory ivory milk when worn increases intelligence by one wow that's really cool yeah yeah ivory faint blue adds a hundred years to life wow imagine getting that for your character yeah Uh and imagine what happens when you lose it and you've already aged a hundred (laughs) years Uh, just the whole scene from the Last Crusade when he, you know, accidentally chose unwise. Yeah. You, you you drank from the wrong chalice. You now die. Yeah, he chose. You chose poorly. Yes. Well, I like the part where have you guys read the part where they talk about dealing with dragons and how dragons are always late. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Dragon. Yeah, you because, can almost never count on them to be on time. Because time doesn't matter to them. When you live thousands of years, really, what's a few minutes? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's exactly. Your your perception of time completely changes. So when you're asked to show up on Tuesday and you show up next Monday after that, because according to this, they could be one to four days late, <laughs> you know, to you – yeah, okay, you were a little late. I mean, that's like being 15 minutes late for us. You know, no big deal. Ah. These humans are so, so whiny. Yeah, they're just so needy and always in a hurry. <laughs> they're a rash race. Yes. Anyway. Very interesting, though. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see anything. I was trying to do some research. It was there was nothing I found in White Dwarf. Did any of you guys find anything on that? No. I didn't read White Dwarf actually. I was going through my uh dragon collection. Yeah, I was just trying to do a search through their database for their anything with that and I couldn't really find anything worthwhile talking about. 
Well, have you guys, uh, you know, uh, one topic that I think usually comes up when people are talking about dragons, of course, from a treasure perspective, is dragon scale armor. Did you guys find a lot on that? Because there's a great article on it in Dragon. Uh, I didn't see the article, but I, I remember reading it a long time ago, and I used quite a bit of ideas for dragon armor, which is really cool, depending on the color of the dragon you steal the armor from, or pull it off of, or find it when they shed or molt. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's not, you know, you cannot simply kill a dragon and say, well, we carve out the skin and we're ready to make some armor. It, there's really a lot of caveats to, to make and draw. It's, it's hard. First of all, you can't use any magic, even a single magical attack directed against a dragon. And this came out of dragon armor issue number 62 by Roger E. Moore. Even a single magical attack directed against a dragon, whether or not the spell casting succeeds and whether or not the spell causes damage to the dragon, will ruin the protective potential of the dragon uh, of the creature's hide and make later attempts at enchantment ineffective. So you have to kill it without using any magic, which can be a real hard thing to do when you're going up against a powerful dragon. And it can't be a young dragon. It's got to be at least adult in age. And if you're using edged weapons to kill it, you're suddenly getting into percentile chances that are cumulative that you're going to ruin the hide anyway. So, yeah. And then, of course, once you do actually succeed somehow in killing the, the dragon without using magic or edged weapons uh, to any large extent, now you actually have to make the armor, which, by the way, a full dragon only makes one suit of of scale mail equivalent armor. Uh, and once you have made that armor, uh, which is essentially armor class six, it's a little bit lighter than regular scale mail. Uh, but you, you have to find master craftsmen who will prepare it at three times the cost of normal uh, armor crafting. And then you have to find a magic user who will put the spells on it that you need to have because you have to do an enchant item on it. And then you have to have a catalyst to bring out the, the skin's protective qualities, uh, which in the case of a white dragon, they have to cast ice storm on it uh, for a black dragon. It's not really a spell. They have to immerse it in acid for up to 24 hours uh, green dragon's stinking cloud must be cast on it. Blue dragon, you have to cast shocking grass. Red dragon, you have to cast burning hands. Uh, and then, of course, once all this is done, and, and 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 by the way, if any of the spells for whatever reason failed, the magic user is under no obligation to give you your money back or try a second time. That's up to him. Uh, but you end up with some really neat. You do end up with some neat armor, uh, like wh white dragon armor gives you resistance against uh, white dragon breath, winter wolf breath, cone of cold spell, uh, any attack basically involving cold ice or frost. Uh, if you black dragon armor protects you from giant slug spittle or ankeg digestive acid. Uh, they're just great stuff. Of course, I would not recommend wearing that armor if you meet a dragon. Because it'll probably put them in a frenzy. Yeah, they would probably be annoyed uh, that uh, you're wearing the armor of one of their brethren. Maybe. Yeah, and I don't even think, I mean, at least as I would run it, I don't even think you could wear evil, you know, chromatic, uh, one of the colored uh, dragon skins in front of a good dragon. 
I, I have a feeling they would not be, it, they would probably take a front to it also. It, it'd be yeah, like, so. look, I got a scalp to somebody's good. They're not going to be happy about it. Right. Skin, it, the, the skin off some person and putting it on your own to be, you know, yeah. like, they, you know, horror movies or something. It's just horrifying and disgusting. Right. Oh, yeah. They'd probably be like, that's barbaric. Yeah, and if and, squash you, <laughs> yeah, and if it's like a black dragon and a good dragon, see, so they might think you're some worshiper of them, of a black. Oh, exactly. Dragon. Yeah. So at yeah, that totally point, at that point, it just you, we must kill you even quicker. Yeah, exactly. There is one less uh, barbaric person in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I just remember when I was coming up in Dungeons and Dragons back in the uh, 80s and early 90s. That was always something that. People, whenever they would, uh, whenever they go up against a dragon, or really one of the reasons why they wanted to go up against a dragon was they wanted its skin. Uh, and I think in the past we always did it. Our GM, our DM was probably way too lenient with us on this because he didn't really make us go through all the hoops that are involved in it. But I think really to truly appreciate it, I, I would definitely make them go through all the hoops. Yeah, because otherwise, why wouldn't there be like, Five million different suits of dragon scale armor running around in the game world. Oh, exactly, uh, and you know, and they also uh, in the in the article that I Gregory Wren's article on self defense for dragons covers also a very interesting fact. You know, they say of all the monsters that are out there, dragons are oftentimes. Uh, they're the one that people want to fight for some reason. You know, you don't because the payoff is they are the best payoff. If you if you compare damage to to, uh, you know, to to what you're going to get, you want to go with a dragon every time because there are a lot of monsters out there that can do similar well, not a lot, but there are monsters out there that can do similar amounts of damage. Devils, demons, uh, even, you know, but wraiths do life draining, but dragons don't do that. But none of those are going to give you the ultimate payoff in terms of, of treasure that a dragon does. Right. Yeah, just from like a risk reward, it's a pretty good uh, balance there because, yeah, if you slay this massive monster one you get all the fame and you get a nice little trophy from like ooh, look at exactly. this exactly and then who doesn't he, want to be george the dragon slayer exactly and then they have all this stuff and you and since they live so long you never know what really old super powerful artifact they could happen to have in their treasure trove because they are hoarders they're very much hoarders and even the good dragons are hoarders uh it's their horde is their social status it would be interesting though if you made a dragon that was a hoarder but he hoard junk his hoard was (laughs) nothing but trash and junk interestingly enough uh in another one of the uh articles i was reading uh which was uh uh yeah not that one anyway they talk about uh, in one of the Dragon Magazine issues the fact that not every dragon you come across when you hit their horde is going to have the fabulous riches of a lost empire most of the time because there are two ways dragons can accumulate their their horde. They can go out and do it the smog way, which is to, you know, pure force and take it over, uh, kill whatever owned the treasure before. 
But hauling back that much can be tiresome, and they like to sleep a lot. The easier way for a dragon to accumulate its hoard is by tribute. They yeah. panic the local natives, and because of this, the treasure's brought to them. They don't. They they promise to be more sparing on their rampages, but that means the treasure that you're going to find in them uh, in their hoard is also going to be more reminiscent of the uh, indigenous population. So if you're talking about kobolds, you're going to find kobold treasure in their hoard. Yeah. Yeah, I, Which, I could see him torturing a kingdom also, or a high-class kingdom, a dragon gets lucky, and then every month the king has to drop off a certain amount of riches from his land, and that's where the big hordes will start coming in. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, dragons, they can be also awful lazy. Yeah. So if there's an easier way to get the to get the loot to their hoard, they're gonna take it. Yeah. Much how much uh just like when the adventurers go to ask the dragon for advice, he says, I'll help you out if you go fetch this for me. Right. So that's exactly. A- that's a third way they can get it. You want something from them, they want you to do something for them. Right. Oh yeah. Dragon's not gonna freely give you information. Sorry. <laughs> right. Knowledge is power. Everything costs. Yeah. And no yeah, it's, it's interesting because they talk about uh, in uh, Dragon Deities uh, by Ed Greenwood. Uh, that was, uh, no, I'm sorry. Dragons and Their Deities, issue number 86 by Alan Zumwalt. Uh, he talks quite a bit about the fact that uh, Tiamat and, uh, and Bahamut they see they actually almost agree on what they see as the weakness of their race, and that is their greed. Uh, because even good dragons can be to a large extent greedy. They're good, they're not they're not trying to, you know, they 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 fight for what is good in the world, but at the same time, they still love their gold yeah, or still. whatever their treasure of choice is. And because of this, they say if if there was a one-on-one fight between Tiamat and Bahamut, Bahamut would probably win. But if there, if it became a about, you know, all the good dragons against all the evil dragons, and Tiamat was able to use bribery, it might be a whole nother outcome. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was actually rather interesting. So next time your your party goes to a silver dragon, you know, wanting uh, wanting information on how to defeat something or perhaps they find out that the silver dragon has an item in its hoard that could help in defeating evil make them work for it because the silver dragon may say you're right we do need to get rid of this evil but i don't really don't want to get rid of that yeah dragon yeah yeah, dragons are a great way to uh if your players have too much gold or a little too powerful of magic items to uh take those out of the equation so to because the dragon would love to have that stuff, so you know. oh, of course, and and let them let the dragons use what they have too. If you go up against a dragon and he's got a, a staff of power in his horde, and he knows what it is, and he's a smart dragon. He if he's a smart dragon, he probably will, uh, especially a magic using dragon. Then to him, that's a wand. Right, he may just pick that right up. Yeah. Very true. It's not like you're going to have Scooby Dumb as one of your dragons. Well, you could, I guess, but yeah. if you're 
You could. I mean, yeah, white dragons aren't the brightest of all of them, even though but they are still crafty as all get out. But right. they may not be the ones to use the magic item. But if there is something that at their disposal that they understand they can use and it comes down to their life, they will. I don't think they would use it as a first option because that's part of their treasure and they don't want to waste it. But if it comes down to it and they realize that their own abilities are not up to the task, they I think very much so they would they would take something out of their hoard that could save their own life. Right. Yeah, I could even see the white dragon taking their hoard and encasing it in a giant block of ice. So yeah, you defeat oh, the yeah, dragon. You still have to tunnel through this giant thing of ice. <laughs> now you have a glacier. Out. Yes. <laughs> getting it you 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 could see through this glacier a lot of shiny gold get your chisels (laughs) and you know that brings up also another point is how do dragons guard their horde and you bring up a very good example one one very simple method that would appeal to a white dragon would simply be to encase it in one big block of ice right or maybe another dragon will uh have his uh, little spittoon in front of it, which would be a giant ravine to a person with all of his uh, caustic uh, acid breath, <laughs> where he just every oh, yeah, day. totally, totally. Yeah. So yeah, I now you have the, yeah. So now you have the logistics of getting across an acid pit, twenty thousand gold. <laughs> not to mention the fact that uh, a lot of people. I actually ran an encounter not too long ago in the game that I run uh, currently. And they had, it's actually in the Nine Hells, it was in Avernus. Uh, but they had to uh, go up against, a, 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 it's a higher level adventure, but they had to go up against an ancient red dragon that was one of the consorts of Tiamat. And I made them really work for it because uh, it, it, I've always said that dragons should be almost a penultimate experience. Uh, I mean, it's part of the name of the game. Absolutely. They, they. I don't like running dragons as an encounter. They're too smart, they're too powerful, and they're too cool for that. They need to be the guy at the end of the adventure you got to go up against. And they're going to have all sorts of things that can give the players problems. Traps, dead-end tunnels, spells. Uh, I don't see enough people, in my opinion, that 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 make adva- take advantage of a of a of an intelligent spellcasting. Uh, capable dragons ability to cast spells i think they would be very sharp spell casters they were supposedly using magic before the elves were so it it makes sense uh but they're gonna and they're gonna have all sorts of servitors minions working for them so they're they're a great big bad guy i think yeah and i also agree with you is there not being used just in the counter. I think they should be a reoccurring person in the campaign. That'd be a better way to use them instead of just once and done. Like oh, yeah, have- and they make great recurring villains. Uh, in the game that I was in, in back in college, we had uh, a red dragon female named Flame. Uh, and she, not the most original name, but <laughs> she basically chased, she hounded our characters in every adventure we did. And we were always running from her. So she was always finding us, essentially. And uh, we did uh, Raven's Loft. And at the end of the adventure, uh, my character had basically claimed Castle Raven's Loft as his own. And he was like, yay! And Flame showed up. 
and I literally freaked out. I was like, no, she's going to destroy my castle. Uh, luckily, we had a deck of many things, which is actually how I got the castle, because I drew the card that gives you a castle, and the DM said, all right, fine, Castle Ravenslop is yours. Uh, then Flame showed up. I freaked out, and one of the other cards had, uh, one of the other characters had the card that lets you avoid a situation. Ah, so we avoided the situation, but yeah, we had essentially made armor out of her children's skins. uh, She chased us ever after that, but it made a great recurring character. So yeah, you're right. They make wonderful recurring characters. My one question to you was, since you got Castle Ravenloft, what happened to the previous owner? Did he say, yes, I'm out of here? Or, Well, at the end of the event, this is the original adventure, you know, and we had, we had freed Strahd from his, uh, from his tortured punishment, aww. his tortured existence. <laughs> I was going to say. It was fun. He ran Coach. off into the sunset with Tatiana skipping. Oh, if he ran off hands. into the sunset, it was a very, <laughs> maybe that's how he ended his tortured existence. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it ended the way it was supposed to. And and that's a, I, that's all. I, I think you guys have even done a show on that, but that's a whole nother topic, but it's fun to talk about. Castle Ravenloft. Vampires are another yeah. creature, I think, that aren't given the respect or, or used often by GMs the way I think they should be used. Uh, but uh, that's they're different. really cool, too. Yeah, different episode, different time, another... Sunday. So I think that should end the episode this week on that high note. We'll do a George Costanza and walk out the room backwards. Anyone get the reference? Never mind. And uh, (laughs) Costanza. Costanza. George Costanza. Anyway, uh, I hope that sparks some interest in your campaigns out there. Maybe you got some ideas running in your head right now going, ooh, this is going to be good for my game or... I really like what these guys talked about. Or, oh, my God, I'm going to write it and tell how much I hated that episode. Go ahead and do it. We'll, we'll read it. <laughs> and I'll just say keep it original, keep it old school, and good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. Roll for Initiative.